of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Pro Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 430. Jason Lindgren is with me and Nathan Riley, who is a holistic OBGYN, returns. The last episode he did with us was 415, so 15 episodes ago. Uh, we're going to get into, among other things, the history of midwifery. From my point of view, when we departed, ideas of healing within nature, ideas of what midwives brought to the table, um, we were destroying true healing paths, and we all know what replaced it. Uh, sometime around the 30s, most, you know, talking with Fortune, he knew these places. He knew the holistic, what would you say? It was like a hospital tied to a major university. So back in the day, these guys weren't just coming out MDs. They were also, you know, holistic's not the right word. They were naturopaths or whatever the right word would be. And basically making, you know, like spagyric remedies as part of it and things like this. And that went away very quickly sometime around the 1930s with what we now call Rockefeller medicine. And I'll throw it on the table. I mean, when you go to a doctor today, do you even have the expectation of being healed? And I think some people might say yes for certain things. I mean, we know if we've got a terrible infection, probably there's a drug that will stop the infection. It does a lot more than just the infection. But anyhow, we're going to jump in. Welcome, Jason. And good morning. So welcome, Nathan. Why don't you come out of the gate and tell people where they can find you? And I'm going to preface what you say. What Nathan does has been put into a private membership association, which Jason and I have covered at length. It is not possible for him to share or do anything outside of the PMA, or he could be sued and it could be construed as giving medical advice. So bear in mind, there is a club, there is a PMA, and everybody knows the reasons for it. Go ahead, Nathan. Yeah, thanks for having me back, guys. It was a lot of fun to record and to really see how your, your listenership engaged with that first episode. My practice is, is truly holistic, as I described in the first episode, which is not looking at just the physical, and that gets into the mental, the spiritual, the emotional, et cetera. And, and through the history that we're going to talk about today, you're going to see how a lot of that how we how we became so focused on the physical and uh and and you know through Rockefeller medicine we'll start with that part of the story but for anybody who out there who does want to reach out and work with somebody who is knows the allopathic system made the intention to step out of that in order to provide more comprehensive care to people my website is belovedholistics.com as you mentioned in in order for me to give you any insight whatsoever into your health you have to join my PCA it's a $43 donation every year and then you're in my practice. And then we can we can hash out anything that is that you want. If you need a consult, you can you'll get you know prompted to a menu of services there. If you want to join my collaborator program, if you're a, a health practitioner, a healer of any sorts, and you want an allopathic doc like me in your care team, that can all be available. But you have to join the PCA first. It's all available at belovedholistics.com. So we should make a point for people who haven't been here that long. What I'm going to call a PMA is a private membership association. That's pretty close to what Nathan is doing. Yeah. The idea here is to get out from under the nanny state. There's a rule for this. There's a law for that. And it's not even really a law. I shouldn't even say law. There's just all these things, these hoops you got to jump through and private clubs can sidestep that. And that's what's being discovered. So that's exactly right. right. Where do you, well, let me preface before we jump in. I think we're going to jump in at pre-fifth century. So just bear in mind, we need a basis to communicate here. We all know 
what that history is a lie agreed upon. But the ideas exist. So it doesn't, to my mind, it doesn't matter who's actually attributed or what actual century it was. None of that really matters. But we're going to go through a more mainstream idea of a timeline to illustrate uh, what's become of medicine. So you want to jump in pre-fifth century? I was thinking it might actually be better if we started with where we're at now. Like, let's get everybody to understand what do we mean by Rockefeller medicine? So why don't we start there and just do a brief sort of overview of what we mean by that? Okay. Because, you know, without really understanding what we're talking about, about the business of medicine, big med, big pharma, this whole medical industrial complex, I don't think that the history up until now has any context, right? Because a fish doesn't know water. They're swimming in this little fishbowl. And when you go to the doctor, you pay with this little card that's magically a, a bill is covered, but you have to pay a co-payment. I mean, this whole system that we consider medicine is fraught with issues. And I don't think too many people understand exactly where we're at. So why don't we start there? Okay, let's, let's jump in. Um, and I'll, I'll just throw this on the table. Western medicine is very good at a couple things. One of the things it's very good at is certain types of surgery. One of the things I have not been thrilled with is surgery has begun to implant a lot of foreign objects into bodies. I'm not a big fan of that. And this relates to maybe dentistry where you'll see people get implants and root canals and people like Gerson way, way, way back showed the problem with taking a healthy body and putting, but at the end of the day, if you need a surgery, this is one of the best places. And if you get an infection, they'll almost certainly cure you. But from there, <laughs> let's let's talk about the realities of what's going on in our current allopathic system. Yeah, I'll add to that. If you get like your legs chopped off because you got run over by a train, you're not. We're not going to use herbs and whatnot to fix that. Like you're going to die unless we get your bleeding stopped and we get something, some sort of. Uh, control over your hemodynamics because you are spurting out blood everywhere. The same goes, like you said, for a systemic infection, a bloodborne infection. There are uses for antibiotics. Now, giving an antibiotic for everything under the sun or a vaccine for everything under the sun is where we we took germ theory and sort of perversed it, where it's this war on nature. So, I yes, there are good reasons still to have hospitals. I I do believe that. Have the hospitals overreached? Absolutely. And so that's what this conversation is about. Maybe we should just ask the simple, I mean, I'm with you, but these things are broken, so broken right now. So if we wanted to be honest, there's an infrastructure here that has things that would be useful to a community. It's just that the administration's got to (laughs) go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. And there's such a, uh, such a hierarchy here of people that are in charge of making decisions on your behalf about what medicine can and can't do or should and shouldn't do is maybe more appropriate. And I think seeing through that veil is really important to understand how we got here in order to really understand what is medicine really good at. And it's not great at a lot of things. It really isn't. It's really, you get sicker being in hospitals. You're more likely to die going to the hospital. You're more likely to die when you have multiple medical diagnoses and multiple different doctors who aren't communicating. They're just popping their hand and waving at you from the, the bed you know, from the door to your bed, and then they go back and see their next patient. And you've got your nephrologist, your lung doctor. I mean, like this is the system that we're, we're at, we're, we're looking at. And there's a reason that we haven't seen improvements in, let's say, quality of life. We've just merely prolonged the dying process as the way that the medical industrial complex practices. Let me interrupt you for a second. How can it be that we go into a medical facility now and everybody in there has damaged their own life? 
They're all breathing their own exhaust fumes. So it's not just waiting for you to die or not trying to heal you or whatever we might say. How can it be that a medical professional doesn't know that they shouldn't be breathing their own exhaust fumes all day? I'm just asking the question, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I think it's, I think it's a beautifully rhetorical question. It's like, you don't go to the, I said this before, I think you don't go to the hardware store to buy eggs. You don't go to the hospital to learn how to take care of yourself because the people even running the hospital, the nurses and doctors, for example, they have no clue as to how to take care of themselves. They're some of the most unhealthy people I've ever worked with. So yes, there's good reasons to go to the hospital. The vast majority of things that people are suffering from are not actually going to be improved by going to the hospital. But thanks to the Rockefellers and Carnegie's of the world, this is really the only option for many people based on that little insurance card that they carry in their wallet because that insurance company is not going to pay for any of the other things that we talk about on on Crow. And really a lot of the things that I do in my own practice, which is why I had to do the private association because nobody's going to pay me for it. It's all out of pocket and it's reasonably priced. But if you add it up like your taxes, your co-payments, your deductibles, your premiums for your insurance before the insurance even kicks in, you're going to spend way more on this overpriced system than you would if you just paid for somebody who really is looking at this through the lens of holism. And so uh, the Rockefellers and Carnegie's would have rushed me out of the system as quickly as they possibly could back in the early 20th century. And that's, I think, where this, where I'd like to start the story. All right, let's jump in there. And everybody's aware that I speak with Fortune and Fortune had a direct link and I should pay better attention. I just get so much information. If I don't write it down, it's sometimes it's hard to recall. There were two major universities connected to hospitals that were doing homeopathy. The doctors, and this is like we're coming through the 20s at this point, and these are a going concern. Most of us don't even have any inkling. And so by the time we start to get through, we're going to lose all these guys that are not just MD. They're also homeopathically, whatever you would say, titled or like, you know, whatever the correct word is, they're not just an MD. They know homeopathy as well. And so this goes away so quickly. By the time we're in the beginning of the 30s, it's already, you know, they basically drew a line in the sand and said, all you old doctors that were trained so well, you're going to die pretty soon and we're never going back. That's right. That's right. You know, and a lot of these techniques, including midwifery, which as I know the sort of the headliner for this conversation, a lot of the masses at the turn of the 20th century weren't really able to afford hospitals. So there was still this, the folkloric understanding of healing. It was still for the vast majority of people homeopathy, herbalism, midwifery. I mean, like these were actually still the main players. It wasn't until, so, so, you know, like this, the, the holistic health movement was, has been kind of puttering along despite all of the advances in medical sciences, because many people couldn't afford that until we had the birth of our modern insurance uh, systems. So, so what happened around the time of the century was that medical research started to blossom and the, in the age of philanthropy really sort of sealed the deal. And this is where the AMA and the Flexner, Abraham Flexner report came into play. So around the 1903, we're talking early 20th century, medical reform was the, was the sort of prize of the Rockefeller and Carnegie's foundations. So they put all of their, med- their, their money towards the sort of scientific elites, which was called the regular doctors in the preceding century. And that was really the middle and upper classes. They saw that there was a lot of money to be made here. So they sent this guy, Abraham Flexner, around on a tour of the nation. And they were like, wherever this guy determines money should go is where we're going to put our... I mean, these are the richest people that the world has probably ever known, at least in North America so and in and, and, and Europe. So Abraham Flexner tours the country. He publishes this report in 1910. 
And it's basically an ultimatum to American medicine. You either conform to this German model, and Johns Hopkins uh, in, in, in Baltimore was the first German-style medical school that combined clinical research and laboratory work with the experience of, of being in the wards and caring for people. So we're combining the medical sciences with the, quote, practice of medicine. And those institutions that best conform to this German model were going to get the big dollars. And if you weren't going to conform, for the most part, you're finished. So that meant most sectarian schools, the Black-dominated schools, the female-only schools, most of them closed unless they had a sufficient sort of independent endowment that didn't need these big philanthropic dollars. So this like, kind of established medicine once and for all as this sort of institution of higher learning. And unless you were uh, able to really pay for this expensive university training, which again, the German model was not just the combination of, of laboratory work with the practice of medicine. It was also four years of school before you even started training in medicine. So it was lengthy, it was expensive, it was really only available to the white male middle class uh, as a white male middle class occupation. And that was a problem, right? Throughout history, we didn't see the cream rising to the top based on merit. It was really through this mystique of science, right? And in 1910, now all this money provided by the nation's wealthiest philanthropists were going to be poured into the institutions that they wanted to succeed and not succeed. So in, in 1910, let's talk a little bit about birth, because in 1910, 50% of babies were attended by midwives. It was even higher in major cities. It was mostly black or working class immigrants. And, um, and the midwives and their associates tended to match their clients in class and race. So since one third of the US population in the early 20th century, I mean, this is like where all of our lineages really were immigrating in, they only could afford midwives and they were plentiful. Midwives were everywhere. They were super busy. But then as these new medical schools and residency training programs were opening based on the influx of this giant pile of money, they wanted they wanted research cases. They wanted academic cases. And this demographic, this one-third of the population that was uh, being attended to by midwives, this was a huge income opportunity for physicians and for the training of our, of our new resident classes. So this was the target in the early 20th century. Let's get everybody out of the home and let's convince them that being in the hospital is the best way to do it. And they use this caricaturization, which we're going to get into over history, of, of the hopelessly dirty, ignorant, incompetent housewife, which is the midwife. And they, they did their very best in, in convincing people. But no, again, not everybody was able to afford the hospital. And so they, they convinced the masses to some degree that uterine infections and neonatal ophthalmia, um, which were, by the way, easily preventable through hand washing and these eye drops, which I don't even use the eye drops anymore. It's meant to prevent gonorrhea, chlamydia in, uh, in, in babies that are born. But like my wife didn't have gonorrhea, chlamydia. Why would I be putting goo in the baby's eyes so that the baby can't see their mother moments after birth? But in Europe, what happened when we realized, oh my gosh, uterine infections, neonatal ophthalmia, these things are a problem. What happened in Europe, instead of admonishing the midwives, they were like, well, if people are attending midwives, let's give midwives the, the training and the resources to provide the best care possible. So that's why midwifery actually lived on and was much more powerful in Europe as a, as a, as a profession than it was in the United States. Because what we did in the United States was, let's crush the midwives. Let's crush the, homeop uh, the homeopathic docs. Let's crush the chiropractors, the acupuncturists. Let's crush everybody in the name of making as much money as possible from the masses that truly needed care in the United States. So the Rockefellers and Carnegie's didn't do this alone. There was the formation by this, this group of regular doctors right before the turn of the 20th century. And these regular doctors formed this little 
this little weenie organization called the American Medical Association, which is now probably one of the most powerful lobby groups in the United States. It was really the AMA that that was determined to draw to destroy midwifery in any other competing practices. All of the practices that that people listening probably hold dear. All of those things that empirically work, that they're not uh, they're not able to drive the profits in the way that the Rockefellers and Carnegies were hoping to see a return on their investment. There was also the mark of the start of what's called the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It's like you could say it's my college, but it's like the bane of my existence to read and refute their guidelines because they do more damage with their guidelines, I think, than they do good. And that's not to say that it's all bad, but they're supposed to be doing the job of looking at the entire body of evidence and saying what is right and what is wrong. But if they're so closely allied with the AMA and these philanthropists, they're going to say whatever is going to generate the most profit. And that was, let's convince everybody through the data selectively that it's better to have a a baby in the hospital than it is to have it at home. Yeah. It's a flat out lie though, because um, as is even noted in your, in your notes, what actually happens is when birth begins to move to hospitals, the mortality rate morbidity and babies and moms goes up. So the data was already there and this shows the intention. Yeah. The the root intention of what allopathy is doing because they have the data, they know the mortality has gone up and yet they push the opposite idea. And I don't want to jump back too far, but think about what we're talking about here in the 20th century. And now think about what happened in the 16th century as we work our way backwards, because I'm here to claim, uh, and I've looked at it, that part of what was going on in the so-called Salem witch trials was removing midwives out of the equation. But let's keep where we are. Go ahead, Nathan. Well, I, I think that that does pro- provide a pretty nice lens as to where we're at. So, you know, so everything forward from the earliest 20th century, as you as you eloquently put, really was a uh, if if you were going to sink, you know, if you were going to survive in this environment, you had to have a really good, well-established practice, and you had to be using empirical sort of uh, evidence that your that your that your whatever your modality was worked. Homeopathy is a perfect example. Um, I actually did, I went to medical school in Philadelphia where Hahnemann Hospital was. And Hahnemann was one of the OGs of homeopathy. There you go. Now, now Fortune has everything good to say about this man and his abilities are astounding. He's always referencing this man. Yeah. Hahnemann Drexel's School of Medicine was named uh, for Hahnemann, but they're full through and through opposed to the practice of homeopathy because, quote, it doesn't work as well as allopathic medicine. Which is a flat lie. That's just a flat lie, though. Yeah, it is a flat lie. And so, so I, I do think it would be a good opportunity to go back. And now let's go back and see how we got to this place. Because it's important to remember that midwifery never died. Midwifery has actually been a mainstay of women's healthcare from as ancient as our, as our written human history permits us to go. And I think a part of it was that it was seen as like a woman's domain. It was dirty work, you know, even through the lens of the church evidence that God was just spiteful about these sinful humans coming into the world was, was evident by the fact that it came through the vagina, which happens to be nestled through the urethra, between the urethra and the anus, where the urine and the feces come from, just another dirty sinner. So this area of medicine was fortunately provided for by the masses over the last 2,000 years by women who are otherwise could be known as midwives, but they weren't even always called midwives. They were women healers. 
And that's, I think, a really good place to start to, to look, go back as far as we can. Where, how are women treated as healers? Because the story that we see today is a reflection, and a mere reflection of the past. As we've seen societies rise and fall, the devaluing of women has always corresponded with the fall of societies. And that's a really, really important piece of the story. So as we get ready to jump in, let's just make a couple of no-nonsense observations. Yeah. If we go back to old religious art, you'll see things like the Mother Marian of Vesica Pisces. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think is being portrayed there? That is the holy gift of the divine spark being handed to a baby that then comes through the birth canal and the Vesica Pisces in differing ways was at one time encoding and recognized. And all these male-driven things like the church, they, they started to demote. But here's the problem. On the face of it, here's the problem. In the same way that I know nuclear weapons do not exist as described, before I knew that, I had it in my imagination that someone in this world had a hell of a lot more power than I could ever imagine. Mm. Now I know better. And some of this is going on with how they get rid of the midwives. But here's the logical problem. If you have someone who's done a thing, and you have someone who couldn't possibly do that same thing, which person would you want involved? So a woman has had a baby, can have a baby, and yet they're trying to swap in all these men. So, I mean, on the face of it, we, we lose logic to get where we've come. We right. lose our ability to consider. Um, when we start to consider that this is a dirty, nasty thing, uh, we've been perverted. This is the divine spark is being handed across here. Yeah. But anyhow. Go ahead, yeah. jump in. Are we going to go 19 backwards or? Yeah, let's go. Let's just go way back. We'll just kind of cover the very, very early ancient, ancient, what we know about ancient civilizations. Uh, if we go back even to like Stone Age cave temples, like Southern France, uh, the Ona of Terra del Fuego, there were these, they found, you know, pretty well-preserved ruins of female figurines that were completely decimated. So there's this thought that at some point when men, you know, it, it, probably way, way back, I don't think men really had a role in society. Like they were impregnating people, babies were coming out. There was this honoring, this worshiping of the feminine because they are birthing more people that look like us. How could this possibly be? Men didn't really seem to have any role. Women seemed to be doing the whole thing. But I think once men got a glimmer of their role in reproduction, they wanted to take that power. And there was this overthrowing of the feminine, whether it happened in a moment, which is unlikely, or if it happened gradually in ancient history, is really. It's kind of a moot point. It doesn't really matter because we've seen these patterns emerge over and over and over again, largely driven by the church and state because women have, the feminine has this incredible magic, this, you know, providing the spark of life, et cetera. And that was probably very threatening to the masculine, to the, and I'm saying the masculine, I'm, I'm speaking vaguely here, but man, a man back then had never given birth. And now this, this woman over here is giving birth. That must've been pretty confronting. Like what on earth is going on there without having any, any real understanding of it? So this is, we're talking like way back. I, I'm sorry. I got to point out because I've referenced it before. This whole line of thinking is encoded in that series that got canceled. Uh, I think it was coming too close to the truth called American Gods. I've referenced it a few times, oh, yeah. but oh, this yeah. is exactly, I mean, right. verbatim, what Nathan just laid down is the underscoring foundation of the entirety of the American gods, whatever you want to call it, storyline. Right. Yeah. Neil Gaiman's book. Yeah. 
it probably said what it needed to say. And then they're like, okay, you're done now. Well, it got, <laughs> it got so bad that there were scenes where there were cracks in the blacktop. But if you're paying attention, you'd realize the cracks say somewhere in America. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it was, it was pretty much in your face, but the ancient, the most ancient of the goddesses and that tale was a black woman from the African continent who was empress of everything. And then they show what happened. It was exactly that the man infringed and it was even her, her son or something that, that ends up trying to take the power away from her. But anyhow, right. we're getting off track here. Spoiler. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's canceled so, series. Yeah. So the, yeah. So in our ancient, most ancient civilizations, I'm going to read a little quote here. Um, when the great mother is the predominant deity, even the dualism of life and death dissolves in the rapture of her solace. The worlds of nature and the spirit are not separated, and there prevails an implicit confidence in the spontaneity of nature, both in its negative killing sacrificial aspect and its productive and reproductive aspect. That's from a book called Woman as Healer by Gene Achterberg. And when we look at really, really ancient civilizations, we can go all the way back to ancient Sumer, roughly 7,500 7, BC to 3,500 BC, based on our our, our, our current understanding of the history of the world. This is Mesopotamia. We had ancient deities that were, they were feminine. They would have sex in the spring to correspond with green shoots coming up, you know, in order to pay homage to the fertility goddesses. And there's this ancient lineage of female deities that you're referring to, Inanna to the Sumerians, um, also known as Ishtar to the Assyrians. She was known as queen of the heaven and earth, the morning star. And this was the cosmic force propelling order and civilization. She had this, was thought to have this giant house of heaven. And all of the creation myths in Mesopotamia at the time, Mesopotamia at the time involved both sexes and the female gave birth to the world. So that tells you quite a bit about how, you know, women were worshipped and honored for this ability to create life in the same way that Mother Earth herself was able to create life. And so, um, you know, you see similar sort of rhetoric in ancient Denmark, all the way up into ancient Greece, where, um, you know, our ancient Greek physicians were really largely regarded as the fathers of Western medicine. But but women healers at the time were probably uh, were probably providing the greatest advancements in our understanding of healing. And this is not that long ago. We're talking about just before Christ, when when ancient Greece was at its was at its peak. The cosmologies of ancient Greece are also reflective. Demeter, the caretaker of women and children. Persephone, sore teeth and eyes. Genetilis, fertility. Hecate, childhood disease, etc., etc. Hera, the chief de- healing deity. We also had Asclepius, which is the, the staff with the serpents. I mean, there's, there is quite a bit of, of uh, these his, this historical perspective that still is, is so prevalent within our, our modern healing systems. So you brought it up. We're going to have to reference back. Jason, I've done so many shows. Asclepius probably should have been the, the symbol, just that old wooden staff with one snake. With They're one different snake. Version. Yep. Right. But what we got was a mercurial symbol. And within the mercurial ideas is commerce, thievery, cheating, the crossroads. There's all, you know, all these things that have nothing to do with medicine and the caduceus. But anyone who wants to have a little fun today, and well, it's not really fun. Go look at who Asclepius's mother is because <laughs> yeah. you're going to find Coronis. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you got to wonder how far back these games that we're playing now, but I, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any doubting that, that our world started to go South with the full frontal effort 
to not afford women the respect they always had. And I think truth be told, they didn't just have respect. They were above uh, what men were doing for the very reasons we're laying down. Exactly. But that's starting to shift around now too. It's just that they're trying to make the idea of a woman be more manly. That's what it looks like to me yeah. now. All, all the women, yeah. you know, they shoot 60 caliber guns and beat everybody up like a man would. But I don't want to drag us too far off course. I'm right with you. <laughs> so I did want to bring up the Hippocratic Oath, which is, you know, derived. This is, this is where we actually got it was in ancient Greece. And I think it's really relevant to, to identify that there were two versions of the Hippocratic Oath. The current version is very uh, secular. There's nothing, no mention of spirit, no, no mention of the divine. It's all out of there. The original Hippocratic Oath starts with, I swear by Apollo the physician and Asclepius. I misspoke. I said Asclepius. I meant Caduceus, but Asclepius was the father of daughters Hygieia and Panacea, both of which carried the Caduceus. I just wanted to clarify that. I, I, made a, uh, I, I misspoke earlier. I swear by Apollo the physician and Asclepius and Hygieia and Panacea, again, the daughters of Asclepius, and all the gods and goddesses as my witness that according to my ability and judgment, I will keep this oath and this contract. And then it goes on for the rest of the oath. Every medical student in the United States, at least, recites the Hippocratic Oath, but it's not this version where there's an acknowledgement of the gods and goddesses and Hygieia and Panacea and this convergence of the feminine and the masculine. But those were inherently a part of ancient Greece and especially within the healing prowesses of the Greek deities and women healers of the time. So as I mentioned, women healers were pushing forward. They were advancing medicine in ways that men could not because women understood the inherent healing powers of mother nature herself. And if we consider what we do today is this synthetic kind of perversion of medicine, what was really being done back then was a was the effort of of through salutogenesis helping to one reharmonize with their surroundings. And that's what the Hippocratic the Hippocratic oath being changed also marked a change, a, a, a very paradigmatic change in how we viewed healing. Do they still take it of any form at all? They do. Yeah. Yeah. We, we read it on our last day and then we throw our little hats in the air and, and that's your, your rite of passage is reading the Hippocratic Oath. Wouldn't the last two years of medical quote unquote services <laughs> have completely violated that? I would say so. I would say so. I mean, I think that we violated quite a bit. We talked about like the principles of bioethics and do no harm and all this other stuff. I don't think that we're necessarily adhering to this oath that we all um, ascribe to any longer. Um, I, I kind of wonder if we if we were to you know the the new the new version of the Hippocratic oath I think was written somewhere in the twentieth century, mid twentieth century, something like that. I wonder what would what what could be reimagined if we reimagined medicine, if we would go back to ancient Greece and actually look at what the original Hippocratic Oath said, I wonder how it might actually change the way that, that, that we view healing. Um, because the new version, which you can look up online, is, is quite sterile. It's quite dull. This, the way that the original starts is just so rich. It's like it, it actually taps into all of those subtle energetics that, we, that we've been talking about, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual realizing that we are we are children of god call it what you will god source spirit whatever versus the new version which completely detaches us from the divine which is going to become clear why they did that in the history and nowadays i don't even think people think about it when they read that oath 
Probably right. So let's talk a little bit about that caduceus. I think that Crow brought up some interesting points about there. So the, the caduceus is, you see it on every ambulance in town. You see it on everybody's Instagram accounts and all their practices. And everybody has this caduceus, which is, is symbolic of the original caduceus, but it's not the same at all. In fact, it actually represents something quite differently. There's a staff, there's two serpents twisting up, and then there's two wings on the side. Very, very different symbolically than the original, which is a single piece of wood with a single serpent wrapped around it. Let's do a couple of identifiers. Look, sure. by the time everyone hears this episode, you will have heard the hoax buster episode, which Jason and I just recorded yesterday. Can't wait. Of all the people that have influenced me, I would give that man as much credit because he showed me a new way to think, to express what I was trying to communicate. The center of everything he has done, you might say, is mer- mercurial, the mercury staff. And so when you look at it, just there's so much symbolism there, but look up what the caduceus represents. You're going to see things that, I mean, thievery. Do you remember all the things, Jason? It's just all these things that have nothing to do with medicine. And so then look up Asclepius's staff and look up the Greek myth for who his mother is. And you will see that from the outset, the symbols themselves showed the intention to go down a malefic path. Yeah. Coronis. So sorry for interrupting, but I think it's critical that people get why mercury is such a big deal. Yeah, I, I actually left Mercury out of the story only because I think that the the change in the form of the Caduceus and in the Hippocratic Oath and whatnot, it, there's at some point there's this shift and it's then symbolized in the in the sort of um these 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 symbols that we that we hold so near and dear. But as we get further and further away from the history, we forget about the origins of healing. And, uh, and I, I do think that it's relevant, everything that you're saying. I, I think that's a really, really important part of the story. But this, the reason I'm bringing up the, the caduceus, the Hippocratic Oath and whatnot, is that everybody still, we still lean on the, the maxims of ancient Greek medicine as how we practice medicine today. But it's as if we've completely forgotten where we came from. And as we start to spin our wheels, especially over these past couple of years, you know, and we're completely detached from nature. We're actually at war with nature and we're actually at war with the divine. You know, you won't hear many doctors speaking about spirituality and and how that plays into the human experience. It's all about the measurable, the measurable blood loss and the infection rates in the blood and the blood markers and the imaging and all this other stuff. What about the other elements that, that make us human? If you were a physician 600 years ago, this would have been natural. It would have been natural to think about it this way, but we've lost that. Maybe we should throw in, you know, when you go back to the homeopathy, you're going to get into things like spagyrics and naturally made remedies, but they stood on the shoulders of, you can take anything that exists in the world and break it down using alchemical or spagyric procedures to three things, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Right. And so what Nathan just basically, they threw out the soul and the spirit and they kept the body. That's exactly right. By the way, very few people know when you make a spagyric remedy, Sometimes what is done is you break whatever you're doing down a plant to the body, spirit, and soul. You separate them. You purify each one. Then you do the alchemical wedding, combining them back together. Then you can do this magical thing that only a human being can do to make nature a little more perfect than it was. You can exalt it. Now, the pharmaceuticals, when I was doing the research for the shows we did there, what they do is they break it apart and that's it. There's no alchemical wedding. 
and they're concerned with the body, not the spirit or the soul. So primarily, anyhow, I figured we'd throw that in because it illustrates the loss of soul and spirit. Yeah, and that actually plays a really important role, uh, especially as we travel through the witch hunts and whatnot. So let's so let's put a pin in that because that's actually a really, really critical, the separation of spirit and soul from the body, which comes a little bit later. Here's the teaser, is it allowed us to dissect the body without, without uh, feeling this apprehension about disrupting the soul? So let's put a pin in that because that's a really, really okay. important point, Crow. Perfect. Yep. Let's fast forward through the Roman Empire. Uh, at the time in, in Rome, the healing professions actually, people, Cato, for example, he classified medical people with mountebanks and robbers. Women healers in particular were dismissed as poisoners and abortionists. So in Rome, we had actually a sliding down. And as we know the story of, of ancient Rome, it wasn't all that great. Everybody talks about it as, you know, through movies and whatnot, as if it was great. Ancient Rome was a, was a, uh, was a shit show, for lack of better terms. I think that they had their they had a period of time where they were starting to get really, really good. Women were actually practicing a full range of therapeutics by around 300 AD, but they fell hard. And I think it was partly, in, I think in large part due to the fact that we had dev- we were devaluing women. And you know, it's, it's an interesting, the first wife of Mark Antony, Octavia, she actually wrote a book of prescription, had salves and all these different remedies for pain and childbirth, et cetera. But even that is going to become critical to the story because the church saw the pain of childbirth as, uh, as, as a woman kind of living through the original sins of Eve. And that gets into when the church kind of takes over, we end up with all sorts of problems. So, so let's, uh, let's fast forward through that. It's important to remember that Galen, he wrote about 500 texts that remained unchallenged until the 17th century. So this old part of our history, we didn't really see much advances. But let's fast forward a little bit. Let's go to the Middle Ages. This is when the church started dominating everything, a very anti-medical stance. It was seen as a confrontation to the church itself. But as much as we love to bash on Christianity, early Christianity, women were quite respected. They were considered intellectual. They had these great contributions to the religious movement. All four gospels of the New Testament note that women were found in the fellowship of Jesus. And and, um, and even earlier sects actually they, instead of talking about the Holy Trinity, there was this dyadic greater power, the mother, father. But those gospels that emphasize God as mother, they were omitted upon revision. As we know, the Bible has gone through multiple translations, revisions, stuff taken out, stuff added in secretly. And, um, and these omissions were henceforth known as the secret, the heretical, the Gnostic gospels, the gospel of Mary, gospel of Thomas, the wisdom of faith, etc. But before their omission, the feminine, it was associated with spirituality and a healing vocation for women was natural. So there was, a, there was a turning point here. And again, this is a big period of time, the 5th to the 13th centuries in the Middle Ages. So it was around the time of, let's say, well, let's say like Diocletian, 284 AD, there was the, there was sort of the, the, the murder of these, of these priestesses, Theodicia, Thecla, Cosmos, Damien. These were healers. They were successful healers. They were doing gr- a great job of healing. They were the original midwives. They were now, now they're regarded as saints. There's these, these shrines everywhere for these women and miracles are reported, have been reported throughout the ages to them. So it wasn't like they weren't doing a good job. It was that they were a confrontation to the power of the church. So there was a, there was this, uh, Jerome, he, he wrote passionately about Fabiola. Fabiola was a beloved healer of the time, but he was also considered, I would consider him the patron saint of misogyny. Woman is the gate of the devil, the path of wickedness, the sting of the serpent, in a word, a perilous object. 
So throughout the Middle Ages, times were were quite dark, and um, women could be ex- could expect to be pregnant for most of their married lives. They were giving birth to, on average, six children over their lifetime, and half of these women are going to die before half of their children would die before the age of twenty. So, as I mentioned, and as in all declining societies, women were being devalued, and as we saw women devalued here, female infanticide was common. Women healers, regardless of class. They focused on the practice of birth, death, and caring for sickly children, which sounds a whole lot like midwifery. As you guys know, I'm a hospice doctor as well. And when I'm in my hospice role, I kind of feel like I'm a midwife for death because I'm holding space. I'm tuning into the subtle energetics of this experience. So at this time, even though we've talked about all these medical advances, you know, we, we still, like I said, we didn't really have much advancement until a mid-17th century from these ancient texts. We were still using like feces and bones and urine and animal parts. These are all still prominent in, in a wide variety of therapeutics. But it, it, it bears to, to keep in mind that we started now also seeing some Near East remedies like mummy dust and whatnot entering, very exotic ingredients. But given that most of the population in these sort of early feudalistic realms were, were destitutely poor, these were medicines that were also being used out of desperation. They literally had no other option. But this is important because the healers of the time who were attending to the, to the sickly kids, to the birth, to death, etc., they were getting a lot of practice. So what I always tell people is that back in the day, the women healers, and this is actually part of what, 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 um, what spurned the witch hunts, was that these women had gotten so good at these practices, they were apprenticing other women as healers. Because they had, they had the patience and the, um, the sort of uh, wherewithal to try this thing. Let's try a little bit less next time. Let's try this new thing. Let's try a little bit of less of that. Let's combine these two agents. This is empirical medicine. It's not even being practiced well today. But the women of the time, in desperation, were trying everything under the sun. And then they were saying, aha, this works for fever. This works for pain and childbirth. And they were documenting it. They were passing it down through stories. So. As pestilence and disease were running amok, the men of the, of the society were using logic. They were saying, well, if the eye of the newt looks like this under a full moon, then perhaps it, it would help fix a person's glaucoma during the full moon. And they would start experimenting like that. And that's not bad necessarily, but they were completely discarding what the midwives of the day, who were, who were still typically attending births, what they were doing. They were using ointments, charms, incantations. And they were only doing it, again, the church is dominant here. They would only be doing this if they knew a priest wouldn't find out. So in the meantime, the works of Galen, Aristotle, Hippocrates, our, quote, fathers of modern medicine from ancient Greece, they were being translated into Arabic in the Near East and then into Latin by the Jews. And of course, liberties were taken to fit the current worldview. So the texts that we were still using up until the mid-17th century were largely still ancient texts, and now they were being modified and revised similar to the Bible in order to fit, to, to fit the worldview of the, the, the ruling elite at the time. Would you say that was for the worse? 100%. <laughs> so they were changing things that they knew worked and were natural and uh, really took the patient's best interests in mind to what? What were they shifting to? Well, they were shifting to a treatment protocol. So like an incantation, let, let's, let's talk about that. Charms, ointments, incantations, these types of therapies, which are being used by midwives and women healers of the time, those were eventually rolled into the exact same 
therapeutics that would be sufficient for you to be tried as a witch and burned at the stake. So the church didn't see this. It was, it was, uh, so, so when we talk about empirical medicine, let's say that I, I, I taste your urine, this urine, urine diagnosis was huge back then. I'm using my senses. And if you, if you are trusting your senses as to the treatment or even cure of a disease, then that is a confrontation to faith. Do you see the difference there? Right. Is this really like the laying down, like you were saying, the women were using, I don't know if you'd say intuition so much, but they were trying things. Men were using logic. That sounds like the laying down of the groundwork for what would come, uh, I don't know how far back we're here, a few centuries, right? Yeah. The, yeah. the, the groundwork of where we're at now, where you just ask the computer what it does and you do exactly what it says because that's the logical thing to do and you don't argue. Yeah. I mean, let, let's look at COVID, for example. If a vaccine helped to get rid of smallpox, let's say, then logically a vaccine will help us get rid of COVID. But if you're an empiricist, if you're actually paying attention to how this vaccine works or ivermectin works or hydroxychloroquine or Pfizer's new magic met remedy, Paxlovid, I don't know if anybody's heard about, if you guys have heard about this yet, but Pfizer, the same company that was, that was uh, publicly denouncing the use of ivermectin and lobbying to have ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine fraudulent, fraudulently studied and, and using air quotes over here and published as to their lack of efficacy in the Lancet. There was this giant 90,000 patient study that was published in the Lancet and one month later retracted because there is absolutely no way it was real data. The same companies that were lobbying against these cheaper medicines that had been used for 50, 60 years across most of the developing world, they were saying, no, no early treatment. You got to get them into the hospital, got to get everybody vaccinated, get them on ventilators, use these expensive you know, uh, IVIG therapies and whatnot. Well, that same company, Pfizer, everybody's favorite, was also in the works of developing a new antiviral medicine called Paxlovid, which is extremely expensive. It can only be bought at compounding pharmacies right now. And they're going to make a fortune with this new medicine. You mean another fortune? Another, more, more, more of a fortune, yeah. So the reason that this is relevant to our conversation is if you're actually paying attention in the medical system, if you're taking care of people, you're realizing that these vaccines aren't doing squat. Isolation and masking is actually doing more harm than good. That was the work of the empiricists. What is working? What is not working? And then let's come up with a policy and let's try something new. Let's fine tune it along the way. Logic would say, oh, vaccines are good. Vaccines help people not get sick. So when logic prevails, only logic, I mean, we're not totally divorced from logic, don't get me wrong, but when we're not using empirical evidence as to what's working and not working, and we're going to continue on the path without looking at that evidence, that is what was happening at this time as well. Of course, the vaccines, quote unquote, vaccines that they've been pushing for the past, what are we, what are we on now? Getting close to two years? Yeah, two years. We're over two years now, I think. They admittedly don't prevent one from catching anything or transmitting anything. So how this is allowed to be pushed at the level that it's being pushed to this day blows my mind. It's like the ultimate propaganda campaign that has been successful beyond all belief. Right. This brings up stupid monkey defense that we talk so much about. If people are so dimwitted as to not be able to apply either logic or actual science, uh, did this work? Where's the reports? You know, this kind of thing. That's the stupid monkey defense. Well, these stupid monkeys are so stupid. We can do anything we want. That's part of their defense. I, yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Oh, I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. 
And I, and I also don't think that this line of thought, I mean, imagine, let's put it, let's transport ourselves 500 years ago. This same conundrum that people like, you know, like me, I'll just speak for myself, have been facing where you're actually seeing something outside of your window that is very different from the narrative that I'm receiving. That is confronting. I guess I could use cognitive dissonance to say what I'm seeing out there actually isn't happening. What they're telling me I should be seeing is actually the real thing. That's exactly what has been happening for 500 years through medicine. And that is in people complying with that, with this notion that what you're seeing, what you're sensing with your own experience in life can't be real. People succumbing to that and perhaps quietly just accepting it is actually the more dangerous position. This is what was happening at this time in history. And this is exactly how we got to where we are now. This is not new. This, these are the same sort of manipulation tactics that have been used for years. It's a gaslighting on a population level. If anyone doesn't believe it, Rudolf Steiner wrote, I think just over a hundred years ago now, uh, about the supposed magical pandemic in his time. He talks about inoculation. He talks about the damage of face masking. He says that none of it worked. He, this is over a hundred years ago. So I'm with you, Nathan. I think they've played this game yeah. a number of times. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that it becomes, as we get into the church conversation here, it's going to become very, very clear exactly why. Because if you are, so let's look at, look at blind faith. We talked about this already, but let's, let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Imagine a woman has been attending births now for 50 years. It's her whole livelihood. And she is saying, based on my experience, this thing means this. I, 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 I tasted this in the urine and this means this. We need to treat with this. That is not a blind faith to the powers of God or anything else. This is empirical, experimental research. It's, you could call it anecdotal, but after 50 years, you're going to be hard-pressed to get this midwife to change their practice because they have seen this countless times. It doesn't matter what the Lancet or the New England Journal or whatever says. That, that is interesting. Good, cool guys. That's a great study. But I am telling you, I have seen this a hundred times, and I'm going to keep doing the thing that has worked to keep people alive. That is exactly what was happening. That, that's empirical. That's by, empirical. That, that's empirical evidence. But, yeah. but we're, we're coming up to the top of the hour. So I'm going to cut, save in, save in your mind where we're leaving off here. But I, as we wrap up hour one, I'll, I'll say this. Not only have we, been, have we separated out the idea of spirit and soul from medical concerns, intuition. That's what women were bringing as well, which is just what you, you know, she, exactly she, right. she intuitively did this thing. That's real. And that's what's missing from our time. I'm always talking about being a stupid baby, which is not, it's not a jest. An adult is self is, is autonomous. An adult doesn't need someone to say, you can do this or look how many people come online and they ask, should I believe in this thing? You know, I feel like saying, well, are you an adult? Because if you are an adult, you have the wherewithal to determine what you want to accept and what you don't. But that's we're to the top of the hour for episode 430. Um, Nathan, please give people where they can reach you or join your PMA, your private club, yeah, which is free of so much oversight. Free of any oversight. It's just me and you. It's like the guy who wants to cut your lawn. We have a contract. You're going to do it for 20 bucks a week. It's no different from that. If you're stepping on my flowers, I'm going to tell you, hey, please don't step on my flowers, but keep cutting the grass. It's exactly that type of, of engagement. So go to belovedholistics.com. You can join my PCA. It's $43 donation every year. 
And then if you want to book a consultation, buy a package of time, join my collaborator program, that's all there once you join the PCA. Um, I also have a podcast, the Holistic OBGYN podcast, where we talk about a lot of this stuff and more, including an episode where I did a full rundown of this entire history in, a, in case anybody wants to get a little deeper in, in, into the weeds. We've been kind of doing a, a briefish history on this episode, but um, yeah, you can find me there. Let's give your buddy over there in Newport a plug with the Core Harmonizer. Just so everybody knows, I'm going to meet the makers of what's called the Core Harmonizer. You can find it at ConsciousTechnologiesLLC.com. Again, if you're going to do a regular search, it would be Core Harmonizer Unit. They're a bit pricey, but when you see what they're building here, you're going to realize that they get it. Um, is there anything you would add about the Core Harmonizer before we wrap up our one? I have it sitting in my living room right now. It is one of the coolest things I've ever put money behind as a means of just balancing out the environment. And the story behind how this was developed and the guy who made it, he and his father have an amazing story. Episode 35 of my podcast. You'll get a little taste of that. It's about an hour and a half long. His name is Ross Newkirk, and I believe very much in what he's doing. Um, I'm very deep into the biogeometry, sacred geometry world, and I've never really experienced something quite like this. So go to the website and check it out. And I do have a, I do have a discount code. Um, you can go to my website and go to shop, and there's a direct link there in order to get a discount on the device if anybody's really interested. I highly recommend it. I'm, I'm blown away by it. All right. Well, here's the thing. It is pricey. But what I want to do is get people to look at this thing and I want to, I'm going to meet with the people who designed it. The whole thing is, is if you couldn't afford one of these things, but you get the concepts, I mean, you could literally probably take a guitar amp, lay it on its back and you could fashion something based on the same ideas. And I'm sure it's not going to be quite as good as the one that was intended. But the point is, this is the kind of thing we need to do. This is all based on cymatics. In my mind, what we lost in knowledge of cymatics has put us where we are. When we cross that bridge again, where everyone knows, oh, that's green. That's the frequency it's resonating at. And I know that because it's green. We're going to be in a whole different day. But there it is. That is hour one of episode 430. You can come be a member uh, for hour two or the full episode at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. All members get free access to our two-hour movie, Shoot the Moon, which has 10 or 11 Laurel Awards now. They get all episodes all the way back to one. It's a lot of content. And with that, I'm going to prep up for hour two, and I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.